Well, good morning again. For those of you who are listening by CD, you have no idea what we just did and all the exciting things that we talked about and we shared in here. And that's what you get for not being here. We don't apologize. This is just for those, that was just for those who are coming here. So good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. This morning, what we're going to do, and we're going to continue next week. And next week is going to be a little different flavor than this week. This morning, we're going to discuss what some consider as either difficult or problem or questionable texts. Texts that seem, S-E-E-M, seem to maybe undo or alter what we have been saying. So we've only chosen three, and I, I don't know how many there are. There are a few, and we don't have time for all of them. But so we've chosen these, and we'll discuss those this morning. I will say some preliminary comments, have some preliminary comments. Evan will come up and deal with the first scripture from Timothy. Then I will come back with uh, the Peter scripture, and then Evan will finish with the John scripture. You've noticed in your notes that we've left you copious room to write all kinds of things down if you need to. Uh, as we go through this, if you don't get something or if you didn't understand what we said or if there was a point that's being made that you didn't understand the connection to the previous point, please raise your hand and just loudly ask the question because we're not going to be able to go back and forth with a microphone because we won't have that kind of time. If there are other texts, and I know there might be, that you have a concern about or question about, would you just email us those and we'll be glad to respond to you that way. It's not that we're trying to stay away from certain things, we just don't have the time to do everything. I suppose we do have the time, but we're just not going to take all that. Next week, we're going to field more concerns or general questions about the entire issue of Reformed theology or what we call biblical theology, what we consider as the truth and as the revelation of God. So if you have anything next week, and if it's not discussed this week, and I know some of you said you had some concerns about this, you weren't sure about that, what about if this is that and the other thing, and then Keith and Evan, I think, I'm not sure if Evan, but I know Keith will be doing that and, and sharing that with us, and so we know that he is uh, gifted for that. Amen? So let's start with prayer. Father, thank you. Father, thank you for your revealed word. Father, we pray this morning and remind ourselves by doing so that your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways and your thoughts are much higher than ours. An infinite separation. Father, there's some things that you have consigned to mystery. Some things you're not going to tell us about. But Father, what you have told us about you are calling us to submit to your word, submit to the Holy Spirit's revelation, to give ourselves to study, and in doing so, receive what you have for us as the explanation, the understanding of who you are, what you have done, and what you're teaching us. So, Father, this morning, continue that work. We thank you so much for giving us this great salvation, and not only that, but giving us everything necessary for life and godliness in Christ. Father, how great you are. This series has just, again, accentuated your greatness. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me hurriedly read through these several statements as we go through it. They're in your notes. And just as an umbrella thought or a 
an atmosphere in which we will deal with these issues this morning or these texts this morning or at any time or any study of the Word. Let me read through these with you, and if you read them along with me, just want to kind of go through them, and I think most of them are explanatory. First of all, all Scripture, how much? Every verse in the Bible. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now, that's the first part of a statement from 2 Timothy 3.16. The A means the first part of the statement. All that is written in our Bibles is authored by God and is without error, completely consistent throughout. Would you keep this in your mind? That any scripture in any part of the Bible is consistent with every other scripture written in any other part of the Bible. Number two, I'm sorry. Whatever is written is God's literal and inspired word for each of us. All the time, not just sometime, but for each of us, all the time, having different applications, but it's still applicable to us. While a particular passage may give greater illumination, no passage contradicts or undoes any other passage at any time. Would you make sure you underline that? There is no such thing as one passage contradicting or undoing any other passage. And so you begin to understand that when I read a particular passage of Scripture and I look at it and it looks like it undoes or contradicts that which I know is in another area, therefore there is a difficulty, not with the Word, but with something about my understanding or my reference or something on my side of the equation. Number two, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, no writing of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. This is not mine and Calvin's and, and uh, uh, Keith's or Evans or Luther's. This is not all our own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? Each biblical author was gifted and anointed by the Spirit of God to be his pen, to be God's pen for the writing of Scripture. This means that no human author of Scripture has ever written something that was not from God, that contradicts or undoes what he has been, what has been previously written, either by himself or by another author. While an author may utilize a particular genre, you know, whether it's history, poetry, whatever it is, to communicate God's Word. The underlying truth remains constant throughout all the Scripture. Therefore, to picking up from 2 Timothy 3.16 again, all Scripture is what? Profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the person, the man of God, the man and men and women of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Number three, the various sections of Scripture are written into a variety of contexts for specific reasons which should be understood, should be known, so that the passages will be better understood and applied. There are reasons and contexts for these Scriptures. They are never written just isolated out there by themselves, disassociated from everything else. Number four, as we consider some passages, let's also remember what we have learned about God's sovereignty and man's need. Let's remember that. That one or two difficult or unclear texts should not be allowed to undo the several clear texts. We may have 14 clear texts, and all of a sudden we get a text that looks like it undoes it. That is impossible to happen. 
don't allow that to happen. That our understanding of the meaning of any scripture is a product of the spirit revelation through explanation. Amen? So that's where we're going this morning. So I will give the floor now to Mr. Evan May. Good morning. Uh, just to reiterate what Pastor Peter has just told us, we are not here to explain away any passages of Scripture. We are, we are here to listen carefully to what God has written and what God has spoken to us. And we believe that listening carefully to what God has given us means looking carefully at the context in which he has given these passages. So let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. read verse 4. Start in verse 3. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So just on the face of reading that text, what, what about that passage is a problem, uh, or seems to be a problem, based on what we have studied so far through the doctrines of grace. What's that? All people. So he desires all people to be saved. And we've learned through the doctrines of grace class that God has a particular people that he has planned for their salvation, for the elect. So sometimes this, this passage is read in a way so as to deny that truth. Now, what is the assumption about the meaning of all in the way that that passage is read. Every individual on the planet, right? Every individual who has ever lived. Um, so first, we, we know that this is the Apostle Paul writing this, this passage. This is, this is the same Apostle Paul who has penned Romans chapter 9, and Ephesians chapter 1, and so as Peter has said, we know that whatever Paul is intending to convey here, he's not intending to contradict what he has already taught, what he has clearly taught in, in the passages that we've looked at throughout this, this class. So we, we need to understand what exactly does Paul mean by this phrase, all people. Sometimes it's said, all means all, and that's all all means. And that's true. All means all. But it, it means all of what? All of a group of individuals. And that group needs to be specified by the context of the discussion. So if I, if I say, are we all here this morning? Is everyone here? Now, do you take me to mean by that statement, are all 7 billion people on the planet in this room this morning? No, we, we know, you know, just normal human language. The context of what I'm saying and making that statement is the class, is everyone who's attended the Doctrines of Grace class present this morning. And that's how it would be understood. So we need to look at the passage of Scripture to understand what is intended. For instance, uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 1, uh, Luke 
writes that Caesar had made a decree that all the world should be registered. Now, is, is Luke intending by that to refer to the people in China, to the people in South America, to the people in the, in the New World, the Old World? Well, obviously, the, the context of that statement is referring to the Roman world, all of the Roman citizens to be registered. There are several passages of Scripture that if we just take the word all, all people, and, and we replace that with every single person who's ever lived, we would end up not only with, with denying the doctrine of election, but we'd end up with universalism, with the idea that in the end, every person is going to be saved. Just look at a couple of samplings of, of passages. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Will everyone be made alive in the end? Will everyone be glorified, brought into the presence of the Lord in heaven? Colossians 1.20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Is everyone reconciled to God? Romans 3, 23 through 24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. So is everyone justified? All have sinned and are justified. Is everyone declared righteous in Christ by faith? Well, we know that's not what Paul's intending to, to say in those texts based upon what he teaches elsewhere. So we need to look at the context to refer to what Paul, to, to know what Paul's referring to. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So here, Paul uses that same phrase. He exhorts us to pray for all people. Now, does this mean in order to obey this, this commandment faithfully that we need to take out our phone book and pray for all 7 billion people on the planet individually? Well, no. Paul specifies what he means in the second verse. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So we are to pray for all people, including kings and all who are in high positions, because they have a role in our ability to live a peaceful and God-honoring life. In other words, we should not limit our prayers to individuals who are like us in class or status, but should pray for all kinds of people, even if they are not people we particularly favor, such as the government officials. So Paul says in verse 1, we should pray for all people. And then in verse 2, he describes what he means by all people when he refers to kinds of people. You should pray for kings. You should pray for people who are in high positions. You should pray for people who are in authority over you. And then he says in verse 3, he gives us a theological reason why our prayers should not be limited only to people who are like us. He says in verse 3, this, that is praying for all kinds of people, including governmental authorities, is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, 
who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So he says, our prayers should not be prejudiced against any class of individuals because the gospel is not prejudiced against any class of individuals. That's Paul's point in verse 4. He desires all people, all kinds of people to be saved. He's not referring to all without exception, all including every individual person in the world, but all without distinction, all without distinction to class or status or ethnicity. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, uh, the verse we looked at earlier. He says, before he says in verse 23, he says in verse 22, for there is no distinction, no distinction between Jew or Gentile, for all have sinned. Jew and Gentile have sinned, and Jew and Gentile are justified by grace through faith. And then he, this becomes more clear as we move through the passage in verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. So verse 5 begins with the word for. So he's, he's indicating that, that he is grounding his previous statement. He's providing a foundation for what he has just said when he says that God desires all people to be saved. And then he says for, and then he gives this statement, there's one mediator. The gospel includes people from every class and status and ethnicity. There is one message of salvation with one Savior, Jesus. Kings do not have a different Savior than peasants. Jews do not have a different gospel than Gentiles. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all such as these. And then he becomes more clear in verse 7. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So for this reason, because of the inclusiveness of the gospel, because the gospel includes all people of every status and race and class and ethnicity, Paul was appointed a teacher of the Gentiles. Verse 7, he clarifies again what he means when he uses this term all. Jew and Gentile, all. So in verse 4, God desires all people to be saved. And in verse 6, Jesus is the ransom for all. But verse 2 and verse 7 both define what Paul means by all. All classes of people, kings and subjects in verse 2, and all races of people, Jews and Gentiles in verse 7. Now, this isn't the only time in the book of 1 Timothy that Paul uses the word all, meaning all kinds. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, that the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, sometimes that passage is, is misquoted to say money is the root of all evil. We know that's, that's not true. That's not what Paul's saying here. But is the love of money really the root of every single instance of evil? Every time we disobey God, every time we dishonor the Lord, it can be traced back 
and, and somewhere the source is loving money. Obviously, that's not what, what Paul means by this. He's, he's saying that the love of money, it, it, it issues forth in all kinds of evil. All sorts of evil come from cherishing money and holding it in an idolatrous way. And that's how the English Standard Version translates this passage, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, using the same construction in the original language that's present in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. So we'll move to Peter and go forward from there. Thank you, Evan. As we said, these are terse, short explanations, which is the best we can do under the context. If you have any further questions or any further need for discussion or whatever, we're open to this because we are satisfied that this is the word of God and it's the truth. You know, during the medal activity, the Olympic activities, I was not wanting any of you to have gotten, not gotten a medal. I, I didn't want any of you not to have gotten a medal, but that all should be winners. All should be winners. Now, before we go into 2 Peter 3, 9, how many of you misunderstood what I just said? I was not wanting any of you to not have gotten a medal, but that all should be winners. Does everybody understand that? Who was the all referring to? To those who have, or am I speaking to about everyone in the world? So the context. So let's look at 2 Peter 3, 9. The verse says this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should come or reach repentance. So again, this is one of those passages which seem to maybe contradict or undo what we have already learned. It's similar in nature to the Timothy passage. Does it seem that we have been teaching that God has had a people from the beginning of the world? Remember Ephesians 1.4. And that he has predestined those whom he has foreknown. And that those who have been predestined, who are foreknown, are in Christ. And when Christ dies at the cross, those, God's people, having been foreknown and predestined by God in the eternal counsels of God, are in Christ when Jesus dies. And those are the ones for whom the atonement is applicable. This seems that he is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, there's a particular issue about this that we're not going to discuss this morning, but we at least let's look at the grammar and the context in this particular verse. And as we do so, who is the author? Who is the author? The apostle who? Peter. Is he anointed and gifted by God to write Scripture? Okay. Secondly, can this passage that he has written either contradict and undo anything that he has written in any other place or contradict and undo something that Paul maybe or John has written? Is that possible? No. It's not possible 
if the word of God is true. So here again, we have a passage that looks like, oh, I don't understand this in relation to this. So let's read the passage together, beginning with verse 1, 2 Peter 3, verse 1 through 4. Let's read these, pass- this, these verses together. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So what is he saying in these verses? The apostle is saying he's correcting the assertion. And by the way, 2 Peter is really dealing with the issue of false teaching and false teachers. It is a polemic. It is a, an argument, a defense against those who are teaching something contrary to the apostolic writings of the New Testament and even of the Old Testament prophets. So Peter in this particular section is correcting the assertion of false teachers' claim. Here's what the false teachers are saying, that God has not been faithful to his promise that Jesus will return. Where is this coming? I don't see Jesus. When did he ever come back? You see, you can't trust the the scriptures. Jesus said, I'm coming back. You've been teaching Jesus is coming back. (laughs) He's not coming back. So he's undoing this false teaching. So that's how he begins. It's an undoing. His purpose is to undo something that has been written that would undercut and damage our assurance in Christ. Verses 5 to 7. Let's read these verses. For they, remember the false teachers, for they, the false teachers, for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long time ago and that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So what is he saying here? These teachers have neither understood the means of God's destruction and the timing of God's destruction for the end of the era. Remember, Jesus is going to come back when the world is under this great cataclysmic destructive activity of God. And so what he's saying here is these false teachers have misunderstood two things. They misunderstood the means that God is using to bring the era to an end, and they certainly misunderstood the timing. And you remember, this was one of the big problems with Jesus when he walked the earth, this issue of timing. Is the kingdom going to be set up today? Remember, after the resurrection, now is this the time? And so the timing has always been an issue. The time is with God, and ours is to trust him as we continue to walk with him. So Peter is continuing to deal with this. Then let's look at verses 8 through 10. But do not, be over, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, 
that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So here we have the particular verses in mind. Now, let's go through the passage and look at the passage and notice the pronouns in the passage. Look at verse 1, verse 2, and verse 9, and notice the pronouns. In verse 1, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. Now, who is the audience? Is it the church or the world? Who is the audience? Believers. Believers. This is the audience. So first of all, what is the context? What is the audience? A primary consideration that needs to be understood and asked. In both of them, he says, continuing verse 1, I am stirring up, what word? Your sincere mind. Who is your? Is it the world or is it the church? The church. Verse 2, that you should remember. Who is the you? The church or the rest of the world and everybody in the world? All right, the context is the church, that you should remember the predictions of the apostles, Savior, through your apostles. Remember the predictions. You remember the predictions through your apostles. So we have these pronouns, you and your, specifically referring to a group of people to whom Peter is writing, which is the church. And let's look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should re reach repentance. Okay, so do we understand and obviously see that the context is the church? Now, look at one other word here. Look at verse 1 and verse 8. Keep your fingers in both of these verses. Verse 1 and verse 8. And you will see that there is an adjective that describes you. In verse 1, what does it say? You what? Beloved. Is that word also repeated in verse 8? Beloved. Now, what's so significant about that? That's the word, and I may be mispronouncing, my Greek man can tell me, but it's the word agapitos. It has to do with agape, which is the word that describes God's love that he has within himself about himself. Okay, well, fine. Well, who are the agapitos? Who are beloved? Well, if you were to look at Matthew 3, 17, you remember when Jesus is being put into the river being baptized, and when he comes up out of the river Jordan, remember John is baptizing Jesus in John, uh, Matthew chapter 3 and in Luke chapter 3, the heavens open, and God himself personally speaks from heaven and says to Jesus, you are my agapitos, you are my beloved son. The word agapitos, beloved, has to do with those who belong to the son, who are sons of God. The word beloved has nothing to do with the world. It has everything to do with only those who are sons, meaning sons and daughters. The word generic is son, the sons of God. So again, Paul or Peter is saying this in case there's a misunderstanding. I'm writing to the church, you, you beloved, you who are specifically children of God. So even if there is in the church unbelievers, Oh, we have 20 people here who are not believers, and they're part of this. No, they may be in the 
general congregation. But Peter is saying, even though this is a congregation of the believers, there may be some unbelievers in here. So I'm even writing to that group of people within the church in case they're unbelievers who are the beloved of God, who are the genuine children of God, having been saved by the blood of the Lamb according to the will of God. So who are the you and the your and the beloved? It's the church, those who have been saved by grace or by Christ through faith. Now, Peter is addressing one group. He's talking to one group. He's talking about one group. And he is speaking about two groups, believers and false teachers in this particular group. He's talking to one group, and he's talking about two groups. He's talking to the church, about the church, but he's also talking about they, the false teachers here. So we have these particular pronouns that give us that indication of what is going on here. So what is happening? Essentially, Peter is explaining that God's purpose and plan is to delay the return of Jesus until he has saved everyone whom he has foreknown. Now look, there are many people who believe this, that God is waiting for people to call upon Jesus and then once everybody who calls upon him and then Jesus saves them has done so, then Jesus will return. And so God is patiently waiting, hoping that everyone will do that. Now, everyone obviously does not do that. And so the burden of the return of Christ is not with the will of God, it's with the will of man. It's dependent upon what people will do. Now, we don't ever see anything like this in the Word of God. We see God moving sovereignly, unilaterally, aggressively to pursue his purpose. God does not give his purpose and his timing and the uh, accomplishment of his will into the hands of people. He keeps it in his own hands, and he uses people for this accomplishment, but he doesn't give away his sovereignty. Now, let's go back to that particular verse, and it says this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Do you see where I am in 2 Peter 3, 9? Who are the you? Now, not wishing that any. What is understood? What is understood by any? Any, oh, come on. What is understood by any? Any what? Of you. Of you is understood there. It's a prepositional phrase which is understood as an adjective modifying the pronoun. You see, you missed that in English. You should have been there on that day. Of you is understood. Let me go back to my original comment. I said this. I was not wanting any of you, this group, to have not gotten a medal but that all should be winners. All of what? Of you. Do you understand that all of you, of you, is understood in that statement? Did all of you get that? Did any of you miss that? That all should be winners. How many of you understood of you is understood in that? Come on, raise your hand. It's the same thing in this construction. It's the same thing. Of you is understood here. So what is the understood, unsaid part or un, that any should perish of you. Here's what's going on. 
God is not patiently waiting for everybody to exercise faith so Jesus can come back. Here's the key. Jesus will return when God saves the last person into the kingdom of God. When that happens, when that last person, whoever he or she is, wherever they are, whatever time this is, when that person is saved, then the age is concluded and Jesus comes back all according to the predetermined will of God in his hands, his decision, his will. Amen. Isn't God's word wonderful? Um, our hope with this is that each one of us would grow in our love and our appreciation of the communication of God's truth in the true and sure word he's given us. Not that we would learn how to do tricks on passages, but that we would learn how to listen to what God says in the way that he has given it to us. So let's turn to First John chapter 2, and we'll look at verse 2. This is what First John 2, look at verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what is the issue with this, this passage? Why is this included as a problem passage with reference to the doctrines of grace? The whole world, what's the issue there? Okay, so we have learned in this class, Pastor Peter has helped us to see that Scripture presents Christ dying for his particular people. He, his dying to effectively secure them as his saved people. And here it seems that, that John is explicitly saying that's not true. Jesus didn't just die for us, not only for our sins, but also for the entire world. So just reading it on the surface there, it would, it would seem to, to explicitly contradict what we have been taught. But there are, there are two things that need to be assumed about this passage, two things that need to be read into the verse from the outside rather than read out from the text in order for that understanding to make sense. The first is that it must be assumed that our, our sins is referring to all believers, and that the word world refers to every person in the world, including unbelievers. So not only our believers' sins, but also every single person in the world's sins Jesus died for. But this needs to be demonstrated and not simply taken for granted because John, the author of this book, who's also, by the way, the the author of John chapter 6 and John chapter 10, where Jesus lays down his life for his particular people. John uses this term world in a variety of ways in his writings. Sometimes the word world refers to 
every single person in the world. Jesus says in John 17, I don't pray for the world, but I pray for the ones whom you've given me. So I don't pray for every single person out in the world, out in the realm of the unbelieving world, but I pray specifically for those whom you've given me. But, but sometimes the word world refers to the evil system set against God. So in this same letter, 1 John, he says, uh, love not the world, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now imagine if we said that the word world in that verse means every person in the world. So don't love the people in the world. Is that what John is telling us to do in that verse? Don't love the people in the world? No, obviously he's referring to something differently when he's using that term world. He's referring to the, the, the evil system of the world set against God. And sometimes the word world in the writings of John, and we'll see this, refers to the different nations of the world, the people groups within the world, the world considered geographically and ethnically. Something else that needs to be read into this passage in order for the, the, the reading that would deny particular redemption to make sense is the word potential. That Jesus is the potential propitiation of the sins of every person. Certainly Jesus is not the actual propitiation for the sins of every person. Otherwise, that would be universalism. Propitiation means that Jesus, by his death, has satisfied, has completely removed the wrath of God and the condemnation of God, the punishment of God, against those for whom he died. So, can Jesus be the propitiation, removing completely the wrath of God for every single person in the world, and then for some, those whom he is the propitiation to receive the wrath of God and the punishment of God for their sins in hell? Think about this. Did Jesus die on the cross to remove the wrath of God against those who were currently in hell when he died? Obviously, that's not true. And so there, there's, a, there's a concept of conditionality that needs to be inserted into this passage in order for it to be understood in that way, that Jesus is the potential propitiation for the sins of every person. But the Apostle John has already given us in this letter what he means by us versus the world. He's already supplied those categories. Jesus is not just a propitiation for our sins. Who is we? As uh, Peter likes to say, what do you mean we, pale face? Uh, so chapter 1, we'll, we'll see what, what John is saying in chapter 1, verse 1. This is how he opens his letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. Now just to begin to think, what, what, was, what are those per pronouns referring to? Are they referring to every believer? In the world which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Anybody in this room touch Jesus physically with your hands? Okay. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us that which we have seen and heard and we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Okay, so who's the we and who is the you in this passage? So we is obviously not every believer. We is a reference to the community of the eyewitnesses, the believing Jews to whom Jesus came. They touched him with their hands. They saw him with their eyes. This is a beautiful passage, by the way. The eyewitnesses. They received the testimony of Jesus Christ, the lost sheep of Israel. And John is writing to his Gentile audience, and he is proclaiming this message even to you. He says in verse 3, I'm writing so that even you can be included. You can have this fellowship. This isn't just a fellowship for us. This is a fellowship for you, Jews and Gentile of every time period, not just the original first century Jews, but across the world and across the ages. You can have this fellowship too. It's available to you. What is John writing to inform them? That's what he begins in chapter 2. He's writing that we would not sin, but if we do sin, we have an advocate. We have an advocate. You and I have an advocate. Who is he? He's Jesus, the Christ, the Jewish Messiah. That's what Christ means. The Messiah is our Messiah too. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the righteous, he's the propitiation not only for our sins. Okay, who would our be in that verse? If you've begun reading from the beginning of the letter, and you've gotten now to chapter 2, the hour would be the same hour in chapter 1. Not only for our sins, not only for the Jewish eyewitnesses, but also for the world, for people of every ethnicity and time period, not just the original believing Jews. Now, how do we know that's what John means? Well, we, we know it from the context. We can see the development of his message, his, the use of his terms. But we also know this because the same author of 1 John is the author of the Gospel of John. And he makes a statement that is almost identical in the structure of the statement in chapter 11 of his Gospel. If you want to go there quickly, John chapter 11, verse 50. Caiaphas makes this comment about Jesus, and then John adds his own commentary, and it's structured in exactly the same, not only, but also way that he does in 1 John 2.2. 2. He says in John 11, verse 50, Caiaphas says, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus is the propitiation not only for our sins, but also for the world. He would die not only for the nation, but also for whom? The children of God, God's particular 
people who are scattered abroad in many nations and many time periods. Jesus has died not only for ethnic Jews, not only for first century believers, but to redeem a people, as John says in the book of Revelation, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. In fact, far from denying particular redemption, far from denying that Jesus has effectually atoned his elect people, John affirms that in his own writings. In, in John, I'm sorry, in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 5, verse 9, the verse we just read, if you look at the verse that comes after that, so verse 9 says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people. He ransomed a particular people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation across the board, not only our sins, but for the world. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Okay? So more grammar for you. Verse 10, who are the they and the them? The them whom Jesus has made to be a kingdom and priests and the they who will reign in glorified bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. Who are they? They're the ones, in verse 9, whom Jesus ransomed. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. The ones whom he ransomed will reign on the earth. And there's no doubt about it. If Christ has died for you, he has established you as a kingdom, as priests for our God, and you, his chosen, precious, foreknown people, you will reign on the earth. You will enter glory, safe and secure with him for eternity. And that's what John is saying in this passage. We're out of time. We're spend. Next week, looking at some more issues and questions, uh, Pastor Keith will be joining us. So bring thoughts with you. Send them in again if there's something in particular you'd like us to address, and we will see you next week.